Michael Waits Media, telling Asia's stories. Okay, we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ed Barker, a senior associate at Square Peg in Singapore. Ed, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, Michael. Um, very well indeed. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you here. I know how busy it can get in your business. I mean, anytime you're sort of setting up something from scratch or just like trying to build something, it can get super duper busy. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Let's get a bit of your background for our listeners for some context. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my background is a bit all over the place, so I'll, I'll take you through a bit of the the, the, the highs and lows over the last <laughs> few years. And I, I would generally sum it up by optimistic curiosity. So I grew up in the UK. Um, I was always excited by tech. I was the sort of kid that whenever I could get my hand on anything technology related, I'd be tearing it apart and trying to put it back together. Uh, a lot a lot of the times that wasn't successful, I have to say, <laughs> but that's how you, how you learn. This was firmly in the time when computers were towers, so you could really uh, take apart all the componentry and work out there is actually a disk inside that hard drive and you will corrupt it when you start playing with it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it is spinning in, in sometimes, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, now we've got solid state, so it's a, a, a lot better. <laughs> Thankfully. So, so that actually led me to, to my first ever a proper job. Uh, I was an intern at um, ANZ Bank in the UK. Um, ah, okay. the, the job itself was super manual. I was fixing computers, racking servers because we had an on-site server room at this point. There was no, there was no cloud. Uh, trying to recover lost PowerPoint files. And I think this was a, a bit of a crystallizing moment for me. It was a role that made me realize that I loved technology, that the power it had, the, the ability to create value from an organization. But I realized I really didn't like IT. <laughs> those two things are quite different in my mind and um i've okay. worked at a number of odd jobs since uh everything from being a waiter to to being a pharmacy assistant and sort of constantly reflect on those different jobs that i've had and how technology can impact them now i'll, I'll fast forward a bit there i mean I, I was living in the uk at this point and meant to study computer science in the uk for, for a variety of reasons which i won't bore you with now i decided to drop out of that and opted for economics and finance in new zealand so Bit of a bit of a 180, I guess, and kept the software engineering and computer side as a bit of a, a latent hobby, I, I would say. F fast forward from there, started a career in consulting. Um, again, very much driven by that curiosity focus. And that took me to Australia, to Europe, to the US, to Asia, doing everything from big tech ERP implementation through to diligence on global fitness technology. So it was pretty broad in terms of what we were doing. And my main reflections there were, hey, getting stuff done in a large organization is super tough. Yeah. And you, you need to have a 10X solution um, mixed with having your an amazing culture, an amazing team, and being accustomed to the local norms that you're operating in. It's just incredibly important, whether that's in, in the States, in, in whether that's in, in Europe, whether that's across Asia, it's, it, it's, it's incredibly important. Fast forward from there, and I, uh, I started a career in, in venture capital. And for me, that was actually more of a a mistake, uh, a fortunate mistake, <laughs> driven by, again, optimistic curiosity than, than by intent. Uh, all the things in my background sort of came together to, to drive me towards this, this area. And I feel incredibly fortunate to have the job that I have, especially in Southeast Asia in this day and age. But, but I can't say that it was necessarily by, by, by intent. It was very much me finding out about what venture is and, and, and realizing the, the, the reasons why I got extremely excited about it. To be fair, I think that's the way most people find their profession in life. It's just by kind of trying a whole bunch of really different things. And it's almost like the funnel, right? You start at the top of the funnel and you do everything. And then by the time you drop down to the bottom of the funnel, you have like three or four choices and you make the one that's best for you and the one that really keeps your interest. I think this idea that you like to take things apart 
as a kid, I'll use kid to define sort of that age that you were when you were doing this, but there's got to be a through line to all of this, right? In other words, how can I break something down, understand it, and then put it back together better? I think that's the through line. Is that fair? I think so. I mean, certainly as a kid, I wasn't the best at putting it back together again. I'd, I'd hope I'd be slightly better today, a bit today. more meticulous at it. But you should be anyway, right? You should be anyway, right? I, I think it's really been about firstly getting quite deep on things when I get really excited. I mean, yeah. whether it be in my like roles as, as, as a waiter or I was selling shirts for a while there in New Zealand, like all, all these different roles, it was about really understanding what's the product, how are you doing it, getting into the business model, even in that sort of retail assistant. Um, right. I think similarly, I'd say here, it's if my EP would allow here in Singapore, I would love to be a grab driver and really understand how, how does this work? What, what's the experience? That all sort of comes back to that broader, broader thematic about breaking things apart and, and building them back up again from ground up. But I think you make a really good point. I've actually thought about being a grab driver in Thailand as well for the exact same reasons, not necessarily for the extra income, although it wouldn't hurt, but really to understand the front to back process of what it means to do that role to mm. really understand how that platform works. Because we can sit on the side and pontificate about it, or we can actually jump into the middle of it and actually participate and then have a real opinion as opposed to sort of an uninformed opinion, if that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's something that I, I go back and forth on quite frequently. I mean, I've found that now being in the region has, has made a significant, significant impact on my ability to understand what's happening in the region and, and, and less pontification, as, as you mentioned. However, at the same time, I'm always concerned of the hubris that might come with that as well, which is sure. I, I, I'm, I'm very I'm the first one to admit that I'm, I'm not from the region and, and I'm, I'm learning every single day about, right. about what's happening. So it's getting that right trade-off and balance that I find um, really interesting here. I also find that people that travel around the world have a much better understanding about the things that they don't know as opposed to really focusing on the things that they think they know. So this is something that I say often. There are things you think you know and things you know you know. And if you do a lot of traveling, you realize you meet a whole bunch of different types of people, you see different types of cultures, you experience different foods and different languages, and you realize that the body of knowledge that you have is dwarfed by the body of knowledge that you don't have. And I'm curious, coming to the region from where? From Australia, right? I was in Sydney, yes. Yeah. So you've been here almost a year now. You wrote this, you wrote an article, we can talk about that later, a, a little bit more than a month ago, and that was 300 days in. So now it's 300 and something days in. It's almost a year. It's, so I'm, th I think, three weeks off a year now, yeah. Right? So that's a perfect time to reflect, I think. And I'm really curious, not just what you've learned, but the difference between what you thought you were coming into, if that makes sense, and what you were actually moving into. Yeah. It's it's a it's a really good question. I would say that there are a few sort of glaringly obvious things that I probably missed out from being being overseas. I think one of them is is just the the depth of talent in this region and the ability to really provide game changing businesses built out of Singapore, built out of Southeast Asia, for the world. Yep. And I think that's an emerging trend that I'm personally extremely excited about. And it really helps set up Southeast Asia to be on the world stage. I think the second thing, which I, I knew of to an extent, I'd, I'd say, being overseas, but really didn't understand fully and comprehend, I, I still don't, frankly, is the, the, the depth of infrastructure that's required to build out, to build a business. And therefore, what's the comparable? I, I'll give a specific example. I often thought of Grab as an analogy to Uber. 
they're both ride hailing, they're both ride sharing. Great, that's that's a comparable. Actually, when I think about it a lot more deeply, I mean, first, firstly, there's clearly the super app and there's there's a lot more services on Grab. But I think also when you think about the orientation of the product, it's largely around drivers and the monetization and the future of that product really, the opportunity really sits about around drivers. Whereas the customer orientation in Uber is not, frankly, around the, around the drivers. Drivers are great partners and 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 they work extremely hard um, with, with Uber, but the orientation is around the end user. And that's just something that I've found was really hard to really comprehend and understand how people use it without being in the region. And also partly the reason, as we mentioned before, around wanting to actually be a driver and, and, and get some of that experience as well. Uh, not saying that it will ever replace doing it full time, but it's just, just getting those sort of small tidbits and increasing your surface area of, of knowledge. And as you said, knowing what you don't know, which is pretty, which is pretty powerful. Yeah. And what's the third one? So, so the third one for me has been uh, just understanding, again, something that was should have been a lot clearer from being overseas, but has been made even more evident since being here. It's just how unhomogenous different areas of Southeast Asia are. I think Southeast Asia is often seen external, outside in as, hey, there is X population, and there is these broader macro trends that are going on without much of a depth of focus on what's actually underlying those, those trends. And as such, there's been a lot of uh, organizations that have tried to expand in, in the regions, thinking they're solving X pain point, but actually solving something completely different. Right. I give a specific example. Sure. Uh, we we invested in Stashway at the start of last year, and that that business it's very easy to look at sort of Betterment's wallfronts over in, in the US and think, okay, this is generic robo advisory. The problem to be solved is, hey, we want to invest automatically in the markets. But actually, when we dig a bit deeper, the the competitor set is completely different in this region. The problem to be solved is quite a bit different in terms of you're not really solving for tax and things like that as you may be in the US. You're actually more solving for access to ETFs and financial products that people don't have access to today. So you're actually solving quite a different problem, which means the product needs to be very different. I want to back up and talk about the, you use the word unhomogenous. I love this word. It's super fragmented here. And if you look at, like you said, a lot of people look at it from the outside and think, I'll just cut and paste from Singapore into Thailand and cut and paste it into Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, the Philippines, pick a country. And yet the differences between these countries are not just the language or the font that they use. There's an embedded culture there that's completely different. I mean, if you look at it at scale, right? Indonesia is like the largest Muslim country in the world, which means that when you talk about finance, you have to understand Sharia finance, right? So typical insurance products don't necessarily work for everybody. Typical investment products don't necessarily work for everybody. So something like Stashaway has to figure that out. And Michele Ferrara and his team, they're amazing, right? And you've seen incredible growth there. But then moving into other markets has become difficult because those other problems have to be solved. But it's interesting that you've noticed that so quickly, right? Because it does seem like it's blatantly obvious, but I think a lot of people look at Southeast Asia in particular as just one big homogenous market, and it's not at all. And I think if it's not, then what are the follow-ons to that? Like, what are the corollaries there? If you look at it as an investor, what are the things you have to think about now if you move into some of these other markets? Yeah, and it's it's an interesting, you're constantly counterbalancing. Uh, VCs have a pension, and I, I certainly do this myself for, for living by analogies. Yep. The Uber for X, right. the Palantir for Y. And, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. It's, but yeah. it, it. But it's a, it's a constant balance because on the one thing, frameworks and those heuristics are helpful in terms of trying to 
like accelerate your learning of an industry, but you do also have to start from a fundamental basis a lot of time and think about, okay, what are the actual problem we're trying to solve here? Um, because although in success, you are the, the, the grab for X or Y, it, it's not actually the, the pathway to get there and the problem you're solving is just quite different. Yeah, but it's also really subtle, right? And you made a really good point earlier. Uber is all about serving the rider or the, or the food provider, right? Or the person who's buying the food to be fair. And Grab really is very driver-centric because they're trying to take a population of people that have been doing a job kind of peripheral to driving for a long time and give them a full-time sort of sustainable income and then provide other services to them as well. If you think about what Grab is doing from an insurance perspective for their merchants and for their drivers, it's very different than what Uber's trying to do, but it's subtle, right? So. From 35,000 feet, if you're flying over, you can't really tell how different it is until you then go talk to Anthony Tan and the management team and realize they're very focused on that because that's going to be the genesis of being able to build that super app. That's why that really matters. Is that fair? Absolutely. And some of that is, some of that is by intent and some of that is by necessity as well. I, I, like if I think about doc, Doctor Anywhere, who are building in the healthcare space here in Singapore and across Southeast Asia, they inherently have to build as a platform business because they don't just they don't just need the online telehealth and then you fit that into an already very full functioning healthcare ecosystem. They have to build out the ecosystem themselves as well. So that means physical clinics. That means tying those together with online online services and building that full end to end lifecycle and the infrastructure required to deliver that. Um, which makes it a, a, a very different investment and investment case than necessarily a, a telehealth provider in, a, in another market. Sure, because, and again, you mentioned this earlier too, but let's say it even more explicitly. The infrastructure that's necessary to provide all those services and to connect them wasn't there to begin with. So you cannot just build this telehealth platform. You have to build all the components or at least find people that are building those components and consolidate them. Again, we talked about fragmentation. It, it exists everywhere here. Whereas if you go to more developed markets like the United States, and even in Australia, all of the pieces are already there for the most part, at least in relative terms. So now you just have to build a platform to connect them. It's a very different metric, I think, yeah? Absolutely, and your, your differentiator and your moat becomes quite different over time. And I, I, I see that reflected in, in how we invest in, in this market as well, where we look a lot more at platform businesses companies that are going a lot deeper in the infrastructure stack, as opposed to necessarily in Australia, where it may be more focused on the marketing, the brand, the customer experience, yep. and that becomes the moat over time. And one, the, the two may end up in the same place. Um, they, they may very much end up in the same place with the same vision, but the way to get there, the pathway to get there is, is, is fundamentally different. It's very fundamentally different. And one of my favorite examples of this is because it's one that I know the best is e-commerce, right? Mm -hmm. Based in Thailand. If you look at the people that built that business, they built multiple other businesses first. So they built a, a real-time bidding um, automated ad business. And then they realized, wait a second, if there's no e-commerce, then there's no ad business. It doesn't matter. So then they built like a Groupon copy, consolidated across three countries, sold it. And all the things that they, and that took like years to do. So over that six, seven, eight, nine years, they said, wait a second, the only way e-commerce is going to grow is if there's a company like GSI Commerce and we're going to build that e-commerce facilitation company. Because until that happens, you can have all the websites you want in the world, but if you can't handle the back end and the facilitation of that, it doesn't matter. And that's why that's such a big company today, among other reasons, but that's one of the biggest reasons, right?
yeah, massively, it gives you a massive entrenchment in the market as well, which is, which is awesome. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit more about this article that you wrote or that you published in July? Because some of the other points I think you made that were are definitely worth talking about. This idea that, you know, there's talent, you build businesses, they create capital for themselves, and then they go back and reinvest it. We see this in the United States, and I think we're almost at that point. But I mean, what's your view on how that's going to take place out here? Yeah, it's one of the reasons I'm so excited, frankly, about this market. It's it, it feels at least coming again from an outsider's perspective that now is the time that you start seeing that acceleration. We, we saw it in, in Israel where we've got an active presence. We're starting to see that in Australia as well. And we're, we're definitely seeing it here on the ground where from a talent perspective, there's been a shift in mindset from a risk tolerance. Uh, and that will only increase as you get more and more liquidity events. Um, and we've seen that in, in the US where experienced operators have a liquidity event they then go to an earlier stage startup and apply all their skills and experience as a CPO or a, a senior executive at a, a top tech uh, organization and then apply it to an earlier stage organization, really accelerating their growth, frankly, particularly in the earlier years. So that's that's really exciting. I think from a, from a capital perspective, we're really early in the journey. I, mean, I was actually looking before this call at just the number of the number of people in, in venture capital across this region. And I, I worked out about 800 or 900 people in venture capital across Southeast Asia, which, which may seem high, but you compare it to the San Fran Bay area and you're talking about way over one and a half thousand. <laughs> so, 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 so for the whole of Southeast Asia, you have half the number of people in venture capital than you do in, in, in just the Bay area alone. Right, and, do and double the population to be fair. Yes, exactly. Well, more. E even more so compared more. to, I mean, San Fran doesn't cover the whole of the US. There, there's a Fair number right. of people that sit in San Jose or in other tech hubs around. I, I think the people in San Francisco would argue with you about this, but I understand the sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think the sentiment being that we're very early in the capital journey. Um, I think it's awesome that more of the infrastructure that helps at different stages has started to professionalize as well. I mean, I, I know you had Chia on the on the on, on the podcast recently. He started the FitTech Operate Angel Operators Network, yes. and, and I, I hope that we see more and more of those sort of earlier stage accelerators and angel operators um, increasing. And equally, on on the other side, more and more growth stage investors coming into the market as well, which we're, which we're already starting to see. I think a, alongside that, we see more and more. I know you spoke to, to Claudia at Pluang recently, and a lot mm -hmm. of their focus is on reducing friction right. in, in the process. That is also happening in, in venture capital. I mean, we, we invest in businesses that are highly scalable and try and remove frictions for their users. And I think venture capital, the venture capital uh, group as, as a whole is, is slowly doing the same in this region as well and looking to how do we move faster? How do we get more founder friendly? And, and, <laughs> and what support can we provide to founders in the region? I think a lot of founders do find, and I think this is a general idea, not specific to any particular VC, but I do think that founders find it very filled with friction, actually. This whole way of like how to raise money, how to do that efficiently. You know, you can't get into my office unless you have a warm introduction. Just all the things that go into it. And, and more interestingly for me, and maybe you can comment on this too, is that for a business that invests in business that are becoming more efficient, using more technology, using big data, I'd like to see that progression in the venture capital business as well. And do you, look, your team has very, has very experienced and built their own business. I presume this is still a principal fund. Is that correct? Uh, no, we, we have, we have uh, a number of LPs. In a number Australia. of LPs now? Okay. Yeah. 
at the beginning, I think it was slightly different. But there's a way, I think, to employ data, employ technology, and to be able to move this process a lot faster. I presume that as a team, but also as an ecosystem as well, that that's being worked on, yeah? I think absolutely, but by necessity as well. I mean, for, for SquarePeg as an example, we've got three of us in the investing team here in Southeast Asia, and that that is not enough to cover the whole market. If you're no looking, way. if you're not, if you're not using any type of data or, and thinking about prioritization and thinking about how how do you go to market, I think it becomes extremely hard. So it's something we reflect on daily, frankly, as to how do we get more effective, how do we think about processes, how do we use data more right. to impact our decision making. Can I back up for a second when you? You were in Australia working for SquarePeg, right? Mm-hmm. And did you decide you wanted to come to Asia? Did they just look around the office and go, Ed, you're the dude who <laughs> you're going kind of thing? Do you know what I mean? It was actually part of the reason I joined SquarePeg. As I said, I, I, I somewhat fell into, into, into the role. I was extremely fortuitous in that, in that regard. And at the time, SquarePeg had been investing in this region for about six or seven years. So initially in the likes of, of, of Property Guru, more recently, as I mentioned, in, in Stashway, Dr. Honeywell. Yep. And it was about the, it was about the right time for SquarePeg to actually open up an office here. We felt that we'd got enough depth in the market that it, it made sense. We deployed enough capital here as well that it made sense for us, um, and that there would be a significant advantage for us being on on the ground. So decided to open up the office in March last year, and I, I joined SquarePeg in February. Oh, okay. So really recently. Really recently. So in, in, it was I've been here for for nearly uh, nearly eighteen months now. Yep. And and that was w- always with the intent to move over to Southeast Asia. For me, it was something that I'd spent some time in Thailand and Hong Kong doing private equity work. Okay. And I got super excited by just the opportunity, like the, the opportunity to fundamentally improve people's lives through the use of better technology. And I would umbrella that term with, with, with access, where a lot of the businesses that I'm certainly looking at today and, and, and the investments of the last year have looked at how do we provide greater access to people to new services they didn't necessarily or couldn't get access to before. because there may be too much friction in that process, it may be too expensive, lots of different reasons. So if we think about that from an education perspective or from a healthcare perspective or from a finance perspective, there are numerous avenues you can then build out to try and provide greater access to services. So as an example, I mean, I think Fenixcel in, in Indonesia is a good example of this, where they provided access to, 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 to credit relatively successfully. And again, gone quite deep in the infrastructure stack there in order to do so. Yeah, I mean, you look at companies like Bukukas and, and Bukuwarung as well that are trying to do the same thing, give small businesses access to capital. One of the themes that gets mentioned to me a lot is this idea, I'm going to just call it literacy at scale, right? In other words, it's not that people can't read, write, and do math. It's that they don't have domain-specific literacy. So people talk a lot about financial literacy, fintech literacy, insurance literacy, and even technology literacy, is there a role do you think that investors can play as well working together with the community to improve the, the literacy part of this as well as sort of remove the friction on the investment side, if that makes sense? It's, it's, so from that perspective, I assume you're talking about end user literacy um, of, the, of the products themselves. Yeah, because like Stashaway can create the greatest product or Pluang can create the greatest product in the world, but if the end users don't know how to use it or why it's relevant, it's kind of meaningless, yeah? It's com- completely with you there. I think um, I think our question is whether it's the greatest product in the world. Therefore, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, um, <laughs> I think I think I think that's exactly. It. I think you've, got, you've hit the nail on the head there, right? It's how do we how how do we in the companies we invest in reduce friction so people are able to access those and get get beyond the barriers of literacy. 
Right. A good example, I think Stashaway's financial literacy focus. Um, yep. So they're, they're doing a lot of webinars. They've got a lot of uh, internal content they produce on literacy within financial investments. A doctor Anywhere are doing the same thing in, in healthcare, where they're looking at, okay, what, what can we put out to, to help people uplift themselves in terms of, okay, we should be doing a health check once a year or every six months. This is how you track it over time. And actually, this is, this is how we can help you help yourself. Uh, with a few of these aspects. So it's certainly something we look to our portfolio companies to work with them to see how we can more effectively enact that change. And it's it's extremely important as well because those customers will grow with you as well. And as you can, as people get uplifted and, and you can offer them more products and think about, okay, have you, have you considered insurance and thought about how, how does insurance play into your lifestyle? Does this make sense for you as a product? There's lots of different verticals you can then, you can then look at with that underlying basis of, of literacy. In a way, the whole ecosystem creates this virtuous circle. I was talking to um, to Greg Krasnov from Tonic Bank in in the Philippines. He's based in Singapore, but he's building a bank in the in the Philippines. And one of the things we talked about was GDP per capita, right? In other words, again, you can create great products, you can have financial literacy, but there's a tipping point around three thousand five hundred, three thousand four hundred dollars a year where then people start buying financial products. And it gets back to if the grab employees, the grab drivers, and all the people that are working for these companies that are, that's called, it's called driver focused, as they increase their GDP per capita, then all the other services that are getting built will also be used more as well. It seems like a real virtuous circle to me, yeah? Absolutely, and, and the question there is, uh, for, for me that I always come back to is, is kind of one of value creation versus value capture. Because on, on the yeah. one side, you've got that value, cre value creation in terms of the, the GDP per capita increasing. Um, we're seeing lots of products in that space where you've got creator economy focused things so people can go and earn an income on Instagram, on TikTok or, or Kumo over in the Philippines. Um, and then you're talking about value capture there, which is, okay, we, we've created all, the, all this value. How do, we, how do we monetize it? What right do we have actually to capture that value as well over time? Uh, and this is, this is sort of, I guess, one of, one of the questions that, that, that Grab is going through with their Grab Financial Group as well, right? Thinking about how, how to, what, what value capture, what right to win we, right to win do we have for this value creation we've done on, on the income side. Yeah, I think a lot about Grab Financial can grow really, really quickly. They say that they have, let's just say, six million drivers and a few hundred thousand, let's call it a million merchants on the platform. You know, if you take a dollar from them every month, you're taking $7 million a month or $94 million a year. Now you're creating one of the biggest mutual funds really quickly, which can then turn into an investment business. You can then give them access to products to which they did not have access before. Like there are just so many things you could do with that, not to mention all the people that they have riding. So the potential growth for Grab Financial to me is almost bigger than it is for the ride hailing side of that business. But again, that gets back to what you said. Is it value creation in just building that business first and then capturing some of that value, but also sharing that value too, which I think is really important out here in particular, yeah? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think we'll see more of that, uh, particularly as uh, sort of, I mean, the world is already extremely globalized, but I think talent is more globalized than it's ever been. For sure. Over the last six to 12 months, especially. And I think we'll see more of that going forward as well as, as we see more SaaS companies being built in this region as, as well. I agree. Before I let you go, I'm just curious, now you've been here for almost a year, you said you're three weeks away. When you, as opposed to looking backward and thinking there were the things that I thought I knew and the things that I didn't know and a bunch of things that I've learned, where do you think we're going? As you look forward, 
not, not just for square peg, although I'm curious about that as well, but for the region as a whole, what are your expectations for the next year or 18 months? That is a, a, a great question and one that is very difficult to answer. And I wish I had a good answer for Yeah, I don't have a good answer for it either. And it's not meant to put you on the spot. It's really just sort of ideating between the two of us and just trying to think, because look, I have a, I have a theory about what's going to happen to central business districts, right? Because of COVID, which we haven't really mentioned, right? So are people going to go back to work? If they don't go back to work, what's going to happen to all of those buildings? And I think there are people building really interesting businesses around those spaces too, because people can't work from home. Just all these things that are happening because of the change in the way we work, I think is one thing that's really going to need to get focused on, but I don't know what the result is, right? And you look at it from the other side than I do. I was just curious, like what you're, just what you're thinking about when you come into work every day, really more than anything. Like, I think that the, the number one thing I'm thinking of uh, at the moment, which might not be as relevant is, is focus and prioritization. Uh, I think there is, so, there are so yeah. many opportunities across this region yep. that, that we as SquarePeg could be looking at and so many exciting founders and, and amazing teams. Uh, for us, it's about how do, how do we focus and make sure that we are reducing friction in the process for those founders, that we're spending time with our portfolio founders uh, effectively and, and supporting them to grow their businesses. And for me, that focus is going to be really important, particularly over the next six to 12 months, because I see this, this market being busier than ever um, <laughs> with more investors coming in and, and more talent coming to the market as, yeah. uh, as well as uh, people want to found amazing businesses. And we, we're seeing that already. Uh, in terms of the more broader sort of what, what do I see on the market? I'm pretty excited by sort of specific value pools. And I think they're going to get even more competitive over time and, and, and the value pools will probably increase. There's a focus a lot on SMEs. There is. SMEs are the, are the powerhouse in, in a lot of economies and a number of Southeast Asian, particularly Indonesian economies, is no different. And I think working out how you build that 10x product for those, those SMEs that can really scale um, and really have hands-off scaling as well is something that I'm, I'm very excited for. We're seeing a, a number of companies in that space. I'd say the second thing is, is, is around, as you mentioned, talent and, and how do you effectively use talent globally? We've got a few local players like Scout and Multiply are looking at remote teams and remote right. team. And I think there'll be more and more depth in that. I, I, I feel like every, every startup I speak to recently, talent is the number one question, concern, keep from the up at night. Uh, <laughs> and that's going to be, there, there's no natural fix for that, right? So right. It, it, that's going to be a continual focus over the next uh, over the next 12 months. Right. So another one of the companies that I know about and I have no vested interest, if I remember the name correctly, it's called Turing, Turing.com, right? I think obviously named after Alan Turing. But one of the things that they're doing is trying to consolidate global tech talent and global engineering talent and saying that no matter where you are in the world, there is right now an arbitrage, right? So if you're sitting in Silicon Valley, let's, I'm just going to make up numbers, right? Let's say you can make 200 grand a year. Same talent you can pay somebody in, you know, in um, Vietnam, $75,000 a year. And if everybody's working remotely anyway, why not do that? But I think one of the interesting sort of social impacts of this is that all markets revert to a mean. And the question for me is, does that mean that Silicon Valley salaries are going to drop? And I'm generalizing, right? Or that Vietnam salaries are going to rise, or are they just going to meet somewhere in the middle? if that makes sense, right? So now it goes from 75 to 125, and this goes from 200 to 150, because now you're competing against people that are just as talented and just as hardworking, but in another time zone. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, if I had to sort of throw a dart at a dartboard, I'd, I'd go for the latter in terms of them coming slightly closer together. Yeah, same here. But, but not necessarily meeting. I think 
there is still a a big value that I see at least, and I see personally as much as as much as with with the portfolio companies I work with of being in person yep. and being able to collaborate on the whiteboard and and, and work through things. Yeah, proximity uh, matters. So yeah, so there's a there's a constant sort of counterbalancing force there in terms of in terms of remote versus local. I could not agree with you more. Okay, look, I think we could go on forever. I really appreciate your time. I know how busy you are. I really want to thank you, Ed, for coming in and doing this today. It was awesome. Thanks, Michael, and thanks for all you're doing for the ecosystem as well. It's uh, it's awesome to get all the different podcasts through.